The Messenger, a modern retro masterpiece, today on Press B to Cancel. Press B to Cancel. Hello and welcome to Press B to Cancel. Today, I am your host, Werewolf, and I am joined by the incomparable Sick Jake. Hey, always glad to be here. And uh, we are going to be discussing The Messenger. I know we're a little bit late to the party on this one. It came out in, what, mid to late 2018, something like that? Yeah, it was 2018, and I should have played this at launch, honestly. <laughs> I'm I'm thinking the same thing. I I remember seeing when it launched and I was super excited about it. And then I just I never got around to purchasing it. I meant to. And then eventually, I don't remember if it was this last holiday season or the season before. I want to say it was this last one where Twitch did Twitch Prime gave users who claimed them a bunch of Devolver Digital games. And this was one of them and I still didn't play it. And it was like a, at free, is literally a steal, because this game is worth full price by far. Oh, yeah. Like, I paid the full $20 for it, and the next week it was a Steam sale, and it went to half. And at first I'm like, oh, man. But then when I think about it, and how many hours I spent playing the game, this game is easily worth the 20 bucks. Oh, absolutely. I I had it for free, and I still went and bought it on the Switch for the portability from the recommendation of a friend of mine who saw that they were involved. Okay, so the the whole reason I went to play this game is my friend saw the Kickstarter for Sea of Stars, which is by the same developer. When he saw that, he looked into what they already had out, found the messenger, thought it looked cool, bought it. Well, I think it was on sale on the Switch at the time. And a day or two later, he just was like, you have to play this game. You're going to love it. You You have to. And I was like, well, I already have it on Twitch, but if you re- really recommend it, I will buy it on the Switch so that I can play it uninterrupted or just, you know, at will instead of having to be at the PC. And he was like, I definitely recommend. So I went and snagged it up myself. Maybe give a couple minutes on explain what the game is, because there's got to be somebody else out there who never heard of this game or really got into it like we did, because I almost missed it. Okay, so... One of the the easiest ways to describe this game, for mechanics sake alone, is a Metroidvania that plays like Ninja Gaiden, especially through the first half of the game. Very 8-bit. The sound font is somewhere between NES and Commodore 64, leaning a little more towards Commodore, I'd say, but not much. And the game, I mean, it if you didn't know it was a Metroidvania, you'd look at it and think it was totally inspired by Ninja Gaiden. A lot of the gameplay is very similar to it, like maybe updated a sort of spiritual successor in a way. But then you add in exploration elements and unlockables and stat trees, not so much stat trees, but ability trees maybe is a better term for that. Just all sorts of secrets. And you've got yourself... The Messenger. And, okay, so you said a lot like Ninja Gaiden, and I agree. Enough that when I beat The Messenger, I wanted to go and spin up Ninja Gaiden and see and play it, because that's another game I never really got into. I always wanted to, but it was always hard. But I felt so good playing The Messenger's controls, and it felt like Ninja Gaiden. Surely it'd be the same, but man. You go back to the NES and you play Ninja Gaiden, they may look alike, but they play totally different. The Messenger feels so much better control-wise. It is so tight, whereas Ninja Gaiden on the NES is just frustrating. I mean, it was an early-generation NES game, and NES games often stayed pretty jank for most of its lifespan. Oh, absolutely. With The Messenger, there is a distinct focus on uh, probably quick platforming would be a good way to put it. Yeah, combat's kind of secondary in a lot of the ways. Yeah, even in a, even in the boss fights, platforming plays a huge role, almost as much as, if not more than, the combat in most boss fights. And in some cases, 
uh, at least in the DLC, there is a boss fight that is almost entirely platforming. I don't know if you got to see that. The race. Oh, the race. Yes. So this game loves <laughs> its chase sequences. Oh, they well they they mix it up a lot, and I love it. And I think I think we'll touch on the DLC in a bit, right. but I will say the mix-ups in the main game don't stray quite as far from the main gameplay format as the DLC tends to do. Like I find it really interesting because when you first start up the messenger, you're right, Ninja Gaiden, it's very straightforward, right? It's it's like an NES game in the beginning, 8-bit style. And it's just level, there's a cutscene between, like not cutscene, but like a little title card between each zone as you go from zone to zone to zone. So it feels like a Ninja Gaiden game. And you can't backtrack from one level to the previous at the time. Right. It's just like the, the games it's influenced by. But then there's a twist, and it opens up a bit. And then there's a second twist. And that's when it just goes full-blown Metrovania and blows your mind. So I don't know how you want to unpack that because this game was full of surprises. It is not the game I thought it was, like especially when I first started playing it for the first half hour, two hours. Then it just changes. The entire game just morphs into an even better, amazing thing. Yeah, so the first half of the game is not really what you would call a Metroidvania. It's pretty much a standard platformer with secrets, stuff like that, and advancement, of course, but it still feels like a level-based platformer up until that big reveal. Once you get to that big reveal, it's it's accompanied with a format change in terms of presentation. All of a sudden, everything is very 16-bit. The animations are smoother. They're higher fidelity because it's it's looking more like the 16-bit era in terms of graphics. And then you've got the sound font changes to the Genesis or Mega Drive. For me, it was, like you said, Commodore for the 8-bit style of the game, the opening. And for me, it feels from Commodore to Amiga. I'm playing a lot of Amiga lately. And just the ah. sound the sound and the graphics is definitely Genesis in there. But it also has a real Amiga feel to it. Amiga, sorry. I didn't play a whole lot of the Amiga. My My uncle was super into it, and he showed me a couple of games for it. But I never really got to play much of it. It's it's amazing how, because I've always heard that there's a lot of developers who have, they always had a, if they made stuff for the Genesis, usually it's because they were doing stuff on the Amiga beforehand. Apparently there's a lot of similarities between the systems or just, I guess, how they're operated. But they sound and they look a lot alike in many ways. So I'm curious if the developers of the Messenger have any history or roots with Amiga or maybe they're fans as kids. That would make sense, especially... You know, leaning into the, even if it's just the, not the de- the developers themselves, but the composer. The composer might have grown up playing Commodore and Amiga. I'm trying to remember what his name, Rainbow Dragon Eyes, I think is his name. Yes, that's that sounds right. Yeah, I was listening to some of their, their stuff on Bandcamp, and they're solid. They do a lot of good stuff. I think I looked into some of their stuff on Spotify. I might have put it on a playlist I was putting together of just chiptunes. Well, I love it because it's <laughs> it's stuff it's chiptune style, and the same tracks. Well, okay, not to jump too far ahead. You mentioned the game changed to a sixteen bit style, and it's absolutely true. And you play like that for a while, but there are points where you switch between eight bit and sixteen bit styles, and the music changes with it, right? And they're very much similar, but quite a bit different, as if the eight bit graphics and sixteen bit graphics apply to the sound. But on top of that, if you go underwater, even. My my wife watched me play. She even pointed out how how can the music sound so different? Oh, you're underwater. It's they they affect the sound underwater to a completely different track. It's great. The sound design here is very creative. That I I think it was a muffling of certain bands. I don't. I'm trying to think of the term and I'm losing it right now. Yeah, we're not audio people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they do they do an amazing job with the sound and how one track, multiple versions of it. It's it's really well done. It's the music in this game. I guess we can go there. Let's talk about the sound design for a minute. I don't think there was any piece of music in this game I didn't like. Some were not as good as others, but none of them were like, oh, I hate this song or oh, just get it over with. They were all catchy, fit their location or uh, well, I, I guess most of them were catchy. They all fit the location they were in, I should say. 
yeah, I mean, at worst, something might not be memorable, but overall, solid. Like, I'll, I still have the the little tune from the the Mystic Shop in my head. Oh, it's it's possible to get it out of your head if you actually sit there and read all of the shopkeepers' dialogues. <laughs> That's right, because the characters <laughs> are also another thing. But yeah, I know it's very catchy. The boss tracks are really great. Uh, I think it's I think it's a solid soundtrack. It's one of my favorite things. I love I love that Amiga Genesis sound. That's one of my favorite types of sound. The sound effects too. I I'm sure they do. I didn't really pay enough attention to this, but the sound effects all sound really good. They fit. Nothing seems out of place. It it feels 8-bit slash 16-bit. I don't know if the sound effects swap between the 8 and 16-bit variants. I believe they're a little bit different, yeah. Are but they? But it doesn't okay. sound out as much. It doesn't stand out as as too drastic as the, the music changes, though. No. And I love the fact that when you're... There are segments in the game where you actively swap between the 8 and 16-bit over and over, just constantly. Like, you'll move from one to the next and back in three four seconds sometimes and the music doesn't stop it doesn't reset any of it it flows between them and drops right on the song in the other version and then comes right back i was kind of impressed by that well and not even just the music but the graphics and everything right you can have one enemy on the screen and then as some of the screens you'll transition from 8-bit to 16-bit and the monster goes with you and it and it's perfectly in sync it's like they built a 16 on top of the 8-bit and can switch between the two in real time. It's yeah. When you first see it, the switch between the two gameplay modes, you're like, oh, okay, that's neat. But then when it opens up with the, th- the second twist and the Metrovania aspects come in, which we should talk about. But when that starts, and you just it just starts throwing all the zones to you in both time periods and both styles back and forth on the same screen. You control some of it with your portals or or shapes. Some of those portals move. And it's just mind-blowing. Really well thought out level design and game design. Yeah. Okay, so I think we can move in on the Metroidvania segment, which that's, what, the second twist, I'd say? Right, because the, the, for you, you play the 8-bit style for quite a number of hours, it feels like. Well, me, because I'm terrible at these games, and the game, <laughs> the game is quite <laughs> difficult. But uh, you get to a point where it's a, you think it's a boss encounter or the final boss, uh, and then the game opens up into the 16-bit style. And then you you do that for quite a bit. And then just when you think the game is over, it's like, bam, all the zones you've been going through, one through another, separately, suddenly the game throws you a map, and everything is interconnected. Every zone is on a big map, and they all have exits to each other. The title cards between scenes is gone. The, the maps are just expansive, and it's full of alone Metrovania. Yeah. It's not as clear-cut as following the map to be able to get to certain areas that you'd think because of the 8- to 16-bit swaps. Sometimes they're put in the path and you can't help but swap from one to the other. So sometimes you have to find your way to that point in one version as opposed to the other. Right. It's like a, they, they basically chalk it up to time travel. You're, when you go to the 16-bit style, you're in the future. And the various maps, part of the puzzle mechanics is the swap between past and pre- uh, the past and the future. Like, you know, you'll have blocks on one in the past that uh, are breakable, and if you, but in the future, they're just wall. So if you break them in the past, swap back to the future, suddenly you have a hole you can go into in another part of the map. And like the, the rooms in one time versus the, the other affects things in terms of the puzzle mechanics. It's really, really cool. Yeah, the room shapes do change somewhat between the two eras. And sometimes secrets are only accessible in one era or the other. Well, yeah, that's the other thing, too, is I never did get all them. So I guess the big secret you can obtain, well, there's two. One is you can get um, the currency, which we can talk about. And you, you unlock, there's certain rooms with big giant crystals, which is a big source of the currency if you smack it. But the other one is these green power medallions, I think they're called. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and they were hidden in various rooms, single rooms that are usually very tough platforming challenges, basically. And you can totally avoid it if you want to. I, I know I did. I skipped a bunch of them. But they're really challenging and satisfying when you can actually get to the end of it and get one of these coins. But I never got them all. I don't know if you did. Oh, I did. I definitely did. I don't think 
I ever got stuck on one for too long. I think the the longest one was maybe five to seven minutes, a few lives. I I will say I like <laughs> I'm I'm I'll come back to this, but I will say I'm I'm a big fan of platforming, and I'll revisit that topic in a bit. Probably incur some wrath of the listeners, but platforming for me is one of my favorite things. I like it more than the combat. And so I had a ton of fun with all the platforming challenges in this game, of which there are quite a bit. Yeah, the platforming is definitely on point. And like we said, even the bosses, technically combat, but they're also very platforming heavy. Was it, okay, so is it Bezamel? Was he in the 16-bit or was that the end of the 8-bit era? No, that was part, that was just before, I think you get the second twist. So that's in the 16-bit. Okay, so there's, there's a few different moves in the game. There's a weird, well, not weird, interesting way of doing double jump called Cloud Step, where as your ninja self, if you smack uh, an enemy, and later you can unlock the ability to smack projectiles or lanterns with your sword, you can then double jump. And then as well, you unlock the ability to like hover like a flying squirrel. I think it's even called that, the flying squirrel attack. If I'm not wrong. So between those two moves, and then actually another unlockable is the ability to swing your sword while you're doing the uh, these <laughs> the flying squirrel attack. You can attack with your sword. So the the double jump, cloud step, the flying squirrel, and attacking midair, all of that intermingles in the platforming. Some of it's incredibly challenging, and for most of the game, I felt I could actually not need to be a master of any of that, except for certain bosses, and that one boss. <laughs> Beth Mel, particularly, you need to master. It forces you to master Cloud Step and the hovering. Because in that boss battle, he's a he's a Hellboy-looking, dual-sword-wielding badass. And he does his teleport move across the screen. That's easy. He swings his sword. He turns into a sword, a double-bladed sword, spinning through the air, the air, coming after you. Easy. You jump out of the way. But he has one attack where he hovers up in the air. And then there's these holes in the wall. And there's these demon heads that pop out of the holes and when you whack it you can cloud step double jump and then the demon head goes back in the wall and another one pops out elsewhere there's like it's a yin and yang of holes and these these things you can bounce off of but you have to learn how to do it to get up to smack them more than that flames are on the bottom of the screen so if you can't master the cloud step and do several of these double jumps in a row in land you take damage and that's that's where the game gets quite challenging I think I died two dozen times to that boss. It was ridiculous. It was the first time in the game where I felt you had to absolutely be a master of the moves it gave you. And it was absolutely amazing. The funny thing for that fight is uh, that was the easiest part for me. The hard part of that fight was his zooming around. I was not paying enough attention to how that mechanic worked to be able to avoid it successfully regularly. Yeah, he kind of did it in an M pattern, right? So you had to really time it. Yeah, and you could almost liken it to Sigma in Mega Man X when he zooms up and down the wall. Right. But it's more directed at your character. I think that was probably the the second most challenging boss, I guess, in, in the main game. <laughs> Other than that, the, the bosses were, I don't know, very fun. Like the character design, if you want to talk about that, is really interesting. Well, I will say that that boss fight was probably the longest part for me to deal with. That fight alone was the longest point I got stuck. I actually, I think I spent a half hour trying, spent another half hour trying uh, in a different sitting, and then gave it another chance, and maybe within five, ten minutes of firing it up that time, I got him. So that's that's the only time I got stuck, like really stuck. <laughs> I'm trying to think now. There's a few spots where I got I got stuck. There was one boss. It was a boss. Boss. But it was <laughs> like a boss. It was the moth. It was the moth bat. So I want to say... Uh, it, I was going to say the batterfly. Yeah, that thing. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he was interesting for a few reasons. But the one was... It was the two different styles. 8-bit, 16-bit, right? Past and future. And I think it was the past, I want to say. He was a bat. And the map was all spooky scary and in the future he was a moth where you know 
he's like a, a moth. He's a good guy, but he's imprisoned. Uh, he's cursed. So to defeat the curse, you have to dodge the attacks of the bat, right? And then, which one of them confuses you, which message you controls. That was a pain in the ass. But if you can survive a few seconds, uh, one second, the moth comes back. He turns into the moth and powders some invisible platforms. And then when it goes back to the bat form, you can use those platforms to strike the bat. I do want to note that uh, those sonar blasts that confuse you and invert your left-right controls, Mm -hmm. those also used to hurt the player. Oh, damage as well? Yes, they used to do damage as well. And (laughs) I think that got removed with New Game Plus because of the way New Game Plus works. Interesting, because you know what? So there's a a few attempts in that boss, because that took me a few. Most of the bosses took me a a few times to get through. Yeah. But there's a point where there's three or four phases of this moth bat back and forth. But whenever you get him a few times, he switches to a different area of the map, and the platform beneath your feet is smaller. And then I think the final one is two narrow platforms apart. And there's just no way to dodge. Well, there is, but it's very tricky to dodge those sonar blasts. So at one point, I was just crouching on the ground, not touching left or right, taking the licks because you're not getting damaged <laughs> and waiting for it to end <laughs> and then use the backwards controls most often to try and jump where I was supposed to. It was a little bit tricky. did not work. <laughs> I eventually kind of <laughs> cheesed it because the whole idea with that fight is the moth kind of gives you hints where the platforms are. But once you've, you've seen it, the platforms are just invisible. They're there. So if you die and start over again, as long as you memorize where the invisible platforms were, you can still use them. So that's how I kind of, I got to cheese the boss that way. I was just jumping for the spots I knew they were at. Yeah, I I did that too. I was having a lot of trouble avoiding the sonar. And so it just became memorize where those platforms are and get through that phase. It's kind of that really cool, ah, I gotcha moment when you figure it out. That's a really fun boss battle. The fact that those platforms didn't seem to change position made it very easy to attempt each phase a lot quicker than previous attempts. Right. So you wanted to talk about character design mm-hmm. and probably just the characters in general. Uh, what what character design stood out for you a lot? Well, so one, one of the great things about this game is the bosses themselves, we mentioned, are all really great. Very, some of them are screen filling, very detailed. But mm-hmm. even um, probably the the old man, he's only in a few scenes, but the old man ninja who gives you advice, he's extremely well-designed. But also the, um, which one, the shopkeeper. Are you talking about the village elder? Yeah, the village elders are well-designed. Okay. A little bit charm for the little bit you see him. But this is the, probably the shopkeepers are probably the, the biggest character in the game in terms of personality, I guess. Yeah. Like when you first encounter this shopkeeper in his shop, I mean, he's a... Anonymous wearing a, a, a hooded robe and it's 8-bit style. But later on, when you switch to the 16-bit style, he he puts a hat on. He starts wearing your hat because when you change styles, you also get a hat. And the dialogue between the player and the shopkeeper is hilarious. Oh, it, it almost always is. Like Every single thing the shopkeeper has to say, well, almost everything the shopkeeper has to say is humorous in some manner. Like very fourth wall breaking. Yeah, I kind of appreciated the fact that the story on the whole was, you know, kind of dark and grim, but still very tongue-in-cheek, didn't take itself so seriously that it didn't have fun with the dialogue. Yeah, it was very tongue-in-cheek, yeah, very lighthearted, right? Uh, one of the recurring themes from the games and a little bit in the DLC was the uh, the shopkeepers are like a brotherhood or an order, and when they merge together, they, be- they giant- become a giant uh, yeah, mage. they do the thing. They do the thing. And it's like, are we doing the thing? <laughs> I want to do the thing. You promised me we would do the thing. <laughs> it's like a recurring theme throughout the entire game. And it's it's fantastic. Like what I love is he, besides just the, you know, going to a place to get the upgrades and, and a little bit of jokes, he does stories. I didn't listen to all of them, but I think you might have because there's a, there's a lot of dialogue with him. There is. I did check every story. In fact, I went through the first half of the game not knowing about the stories because his first dialogue option was to talk about the claws. And I was like, well, I know what the claws do. Why am I going to talk to him about it and learn what they do? So I had no idea that was going to be snarkiness that led to more snarkiness, you know? (laughs) And once I found that out, 
after I was already that far in the game, I was like, oh, crap. Well, I want to start over because I want to see all the dialogue. It's funny. So I made them. <laughs> I I decided and I knew in the top, I knew as it was going on, I was like, well, if I do this, I have to play through this a second time. I was like, I could either just start a new file or delete this file and start fresh. It's like, well, I'll just delete this file and start fresh because I'll probably have more unlocked by the point I'm at and all that. So I deleted. And then I decided I wanted to do a little bit, a little impromptu stream on Discord of playing it, and I couldn't get the Switch to work. So I played it on uh, through the Twitch client on PC and got up to the 16-bit segment. So I got past that twist, the first half of the game. Right. And then I went back to the Switch and played through the first half <laughs> of the game again. And I didn't get bored of it. I didn't get sick of it. It wasn't less fun in subsequent attempts. I was quite impressed. Like the story itself is brief enough. And like if you've done it before, you can kind of skip through the scenes if you want to. Because the core gameplay itself is just fun. Doesn't matter where you are in the game, it is a fun game to play, the way it handles and moves. And it's it's one of the reasons why I'm debating a new plus a new game plus run through. Because I love the controls and the feel of the game. You feel so amazing when you pull off a tough section of platforming, especially ones where if you make one mistake and miss a cloud step, you die. <laughs> you have to you have to start yeah. back from a checkpoint. So the new game plus, I decided to try out the new game plus today just to see what it was like. Initially, when I read about how it works, I wasn't all that interested. And now that I'm playing it, uh, I might have to stop working my way through Children of Morta just to do some new game plus runs of this game <laughs> because I, I enjoy Children of Morta, but the messenger is. <laughs> quite possibly going to be the fav- my favorite game I played this year at this point. Yeah, when it comes to the Game of Year talk, th- yeah, this is a game that will be up there on my list. If Cyberpunk turns out to be a train wreck, it might very well be The Messenger because this is a game, like I said, I should have played <laughs> two years ago. I regret it. I, As much as I love Shovel Knight, which I played also recently, I think I like The Messenger more, just the way the combat, the, the platforming feels. Uh, it's it's really quite good. So for New Game Plus, I only know a little bit because I have not New Game Plus it, and I skipped the DLC. Although I cheated and watched some video, um, the death mechanic in the game, the reason why this game is so accessible, even my my six year old was playing a little bit with me because it's fun. Because in this game, you have a little henchman, a familiar, uh, Corbel, I think his name is, yeah, or Corbel. And then the idea is, you know, you're collecting crystals, which is your money throughout the game, and you can use it for the upgrade tree. If you die and it's very easy to, you have very low health or fall down a pit. Uh, Quirble comes and saves you, resurrects you at the last checkpoint, but then he follows you around for a short time, gobbling up your money you collect to kind of pay him off. So it's an interesting, basically you can play as much as you want, and it's for this kind of game where bosses are tricky, it's amazing. But in the new game plus, because you already know all that, the game twists it, and I, and I want to say there's a cost up front, you have to pay Quirbel if you die? There's an upfront cost every time you die. In the first New Game Plus, it is 50. So oh. when you die, he has to be able to take 50, do- uh, 50 time shards from you. Otherwise, you are put back at the beginning of the playthrough. So, and it's even more than that because there's more than one New Game Plus run through. You can do, I think, six. Every time you do it, you unlock one of the Metroidvania items to start with. And the cost gets higher each time. And if you screw it up and you die, you start back at New Game Plus One. Oh, is that how it works in all yeah. of them? It's oh, like, okay. It's like a permadeath, right? So on top of that, did you get everything from the DLC? I did, and I looked into what it does, and I'm not interested in that one bit. Even though I am <laughs> interested in the New Game Plus, I'm not interested in the deal. So the thing with the deal, right? So I guess if you don't want, if you don't really mind the idea of dying and starting from New Game Plus One. You collect all the stuff from the DLC, it's feathers and mask pieces, and you get something that looks straight out of the mask, and he offers to eat Quirble, eat your familiar, and but in exchange, doubles your health and triples your attack, I, ble- I believe it is. Uh, yeah, I think that's what it is. So, which is an amazing power boost, hands down. But then you can't die at all. There's no, no Quirble at all. So it's truly a deathless run. And that game is so long, I don't know if I could do it. 
I don't know that I could either. It's it's a bit too much stress to worry about. Because <laughs> getting time shards is not that hard. I mean, by the time I died for the first time in my new game plus, and I think I died on the Gollum boss of all things. I don't know why, but every time I fought that guy, I beat him with one bar of health left. No matter how much health I start the fight with, I beat him with one bar of health left. I'm I'm not sure why I'm so sloppy about that fight and never sloppy enough to go, to, or never not sloppy enough to do better than that, you know? Was the golem boss the one underground the caves with the two square fists? And you basically yes. had to dodge them and then jump on one to get to his head to smack his head. Yeah. No, it's not jump on one. It's dodge them while smacking the crystal in his chest. And then it freezes up and you can go under one or both of the hands, depending on the way he freezes, and glide up the airstream, land on the shoulders, beat the crap out of the head until the shoulders spike out on you. So he's he's a boss that carries in the theme of this game of marathon boss fights. There's a few bosses, and he's one of them, where even when you know the pattern and you can do it, you feel like it's just four or five rounds too much, where you just tire of the boss fight, I think, I feel. Yeah, I think I got him. I think I've got him now to where I do it in three shoulder jumps. But part of that has to do with the fact that I did unlock the goodie with 45 of the medallions we talked about earlier. Right. So you have different attacks you can get in the game. And one of them is a shuriken, which you get four or five shots with eventually. And uh, the upgrade does something to that, I think, right? Yes. Instead of having to get drops to recharge it, it becomes more of a boomerang that you can actually jump around to avoid extending how long it flies around you. Oh, interesting. Uh, it goes th- it goes through walls and enemies, all that, and it recharges on its own after a moment, and it recharges pretty quickly. Oh, so you don't have to get the checkpoints. Okay. So I, at first, it doesn't really sound like all that much of an improvement over the base shuriken, but when you consider some of the ways you can use it, it actually is pretty overpowered for what it is. It's not game-breakingly overpowered, but it definitely simplifies some of the mechanics that are meant to wall you off from advancing too quickly. And I took advantage of it in the DLC to where doors were almost not a problem whatsoever because I didn't have to raise race the doors closing because of the switch on the other side of the door that I could just throw that boomerang shuriken at and step right through. Right, because it goes through walls. That's actually pretty That's pretty huge. I, I love the mechanics of the shuriken because it's like a free hit on the boss. Most often is how I use, I'm using it. So it's like if you're having trouble with the boss, at least you know you're going to get four or five good hits on it with the shuriken, at least. Yes. So I, I noticed something. With New Game Plus, I was reading how they mathematically up all the difficulty in the game. And I was seeing enemies were getting like plus one, plus two, plus three, plus four, so on per playthrough. Bosses were getting plus 13, plus 15, plus 17, stuff like that. And Wait, damage or health? Apparently it was health and it literally translates to single hits. Ugh. Each single hit is what they classify as those plus ones. So, you know, when you've got the powered up sword that first strike after it's ready is worth three. Right. But uh, yeah, it's eventually the numbers just grow so much. It becomes probably near impossible to be able to go through the new game pluses without just getting your ass handed to you. Like you have to be on point with everything. Did you unlock more health in new game plus for yourself? I don't think so. Um, once you've got New Game Plus, you start with all your upgrades you've purchased. You start with all the ability upgrades you found and a few of the key items and all the med- and all the medallions you found. Stuff like right, that. Okay. So that all translates through to the next playthrough. You don't get to have the shuriken right off the bat like the shuriken upgrade. You have to go into the shop the first time and make the swap. Right, but you get to the shop in the first like 20 minutes at most. Yeah, it's not even that long, especially, you know, since it's a subsequent playthrough, you're probably just mashing the A button to run through the dialogue like crazy. Right. And it's probably five, ten minutes at most. The story got a lot deeper than I expected. 
and I don't want to spoil any of the story points. We we already kind of spoiled the time mechanic, but I think that's also in the trailer, so I don't see I don't think that's a huge deal. Yeah, I mean the game's been out for two years. Like if yeah. you were one of the few people who have not played this game, like like we were, uh, go play it. It's it's not a very long game. I think under twenty hours, generally. It's I think I beat it in probably the main game in the DLC. I found everything in probably under sixteen seventeen hours. Okay. Yeah, I got through the main game. I didn't get I didn't get all the medallions, although I'm tempted to. But there's a few spots where I got stuck on for an extended period, like Barthamazel was one. The final boss of the campaign, without detailing what it is, is a chase sequence. And thankfully, when you die, you immediately restart it again. But you have to, you have this, as this giant monstrosity is chasing you, you have to rope dash. Oh, that thing! Off these hooks, yeah. And you're constantly hitting these fireflies to open up the wall chunks as you go between the different time periods. And you just, you have to be literally perfect the entire run. Or you die and you start all over again. And I think I spent 45 minutes on it. I almost gave up for <laughs> I'm like, F this. I got to stop. But I stuck it out and I beat it. But that was probably one of the most grinding slogs <laughs> to figure out. That was probably the third most difficult point in the game for me. The second being the thing. <laughs> the thing was, oh, was he hard for you? That was difficult for me. That one took me probably a good 40 minutes. Really? Uh, he was And I don't think I ended up beating it the way it's intended. I instead started really bouncing off of his head for probably 80% of the of the fight. All right, we should explain a little bit about what he is. But he's one of those screen filling bosses. We'll explain what he yeah. is, right? And he's got two fists. This one This was a fight that also reminded me of Mega Man X. The uh the final battle with when he turns into that giant and you've got a on his ass to get up high enough to Right. So and the, one of the things that's tricky with this one is after the first few hits, he has these energy globes that orbit around him. So you can't get his head whenever you want anymore. You have to wait till they disappear. But he throws them at you and you kind of got to dodge out of the way. What part did you get stuck on? I was just taking too much damage constantly. Um, I was really bad at avoiding the energy spheres on the ground when the hands right. chase you between the beams back and forth. So for that one, you get, I think it's like four to five spheres. Sometimes they move, sometimes they don't. And you have to, as the hand is come slowly coming across the one side of the screen, he sweeps across the screen. You got to platform over them. And then the other hand moves. You got to do it all over again backwards. And you, you're right. You have to be precision jumps for a couple of the patterns to not take damage. So by the time I was able to beat him and the subsequent two times that I played through after that, I really spend most of my time in the air above his head, just bouncing off of it. And then when he inevitably throws you to one side of the screen, I jump when I'm thrown and start gliding back down. And at minimum, I make it to a hand. Yeah. At best, I'm right back over his head, smacking him again. So I, 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 I will admit, I did that a lot in this game. I cheesed a ton of fights. I'm pretty sure I found strategies that were either unintended or left in for speedrunners. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I actually, it's funny because I did the same thing because I got, also got tired of the patterns. Because so, what it is is when you, when you do get a chance to get hit the head, it's four hits with the sword, and then he knocks you off. Knocks you off every time. Whether you do it hovering above him and hitting him, or if you just hitting him from a hand, four shots, you go flying. And you're right. If you flying squirrel, immediately you can grasp onto the hand and get back up there. And at best, you can dodge the beams and the balls below you and do it again. Or you're right. If you get really lucky, you can just stay above him and keep hitting him. And it's that's how I end up doing it. Um, cheese is a big factor in this game. <laughs> like you need to. My buddy who recommended the game to me, uh, I don't think he cheesed any of the fights. I, He's not much of a 2D platformer guy, so I don't think it occurred to him to really cheese the fights. Instead, he was trying to figure out the patterns and play based on the patterning, which is fair. But that's not the way I think. <laughs> so I was like, how can I make this fight as easy as possible? Because it's frustrating. Well, if you don't, if you do it the way you're supposed to, Right, it's it's satisfying to find that pattern for sure, <laughs> but the the bosses have a lot of health for some of them. 
Like, for example, the one that threw me off the DLC. I did not play the whole DLC. In fact, I only did the beginning. Uh, you're doing like a surf sequence, and there's an octopus boss. And the mechanics are a little bit different in that you have to avoid his obstacles, his tentacles, while knocking these balls of oil back at him. And that eventually lets you slam into him, and he dies. And I must have gotten in the final phase of that fight multiple times. But the problem I had is he was going so fast, and there's such a brief window or so few balls to hit him back with, I had to repeat the whole surfing cycle, dodging rocks, so many times, and just attrition after 10 rounds. I got tired of it. I kept dying. I knew how that to beat sense. it. That makes sense. Yeah, like I knew how to beat it. I knew the pattern. And it's fine. But just you only got one shot to hit him. <laughs> it was so drawn out. And like that was my theme, right? A lot of the bosses are – it felt grueling for some of them. Like I love the design and the mechanics, but I just wish they had maybe a notch or two less, less health. It helps you get that sword upgrade, which if you let it charge a bit, you get the three hits for one. But overall, some of the bosses are just grindy. <laughs> I didn't actually have any trouble with that. I did have to go back and try it a second and third time to get the, you know, the, the optional secret. Right. But uh, other than that, I didn't have a ton of trouble with it. But I get why it might not be enticing for people to want to play beyond that point. Like you said, you had a lot of trouble with it to where it just wasn't working for you. And it is, like like I said earlier, the DLC really strays from the main gameplay mechanics. And that is probably the biggest form of it doing so. My buddy almost broke on that one too. He was like, I did not like that section at all. But in the interest of trying to find, like to, to continue the story because I loved the main game, I will keep playing beyond that. And he found the DLC much more difficult than the main game. And I would say to a degree it is. Eventually it broke him, and he could, he was unable to finish it. Well, even past that octopus boss, as when I was watching this video footage of it, the level segments after it are all, they all ramp up the platforming, right? Like yeah. at that point in the game, you're supposed to be a master of everything. Everything the game has and given you, from the shuriken to the cloud step to the gliding, and the rope dash, especially. And you're you're supposed to be a master of all of that. <laughs> and it puts it all together in a package of levels where you have to use everything at your disposal. And there's some of that was very difficult. Like even the, the one boss I was watching a video of, uh, it's like an eagle, uh, well, a bird totem, right? In three sections. And just dodging tornadoes to dodging the totem pieces. Most of them are spiked. <laughs> and just if you don't do it right, you're going you're gonna to fall and die. It, that would have drove, drove me nuts. Like, I had enough troubles with the dragon bice as it was. <laughs> Doing that fight properly would have probably broken me, but that's another one I figured out how to cheese. And so I was probably at that fight for about 15 minutes total. <laughs> oh, see, there's no way. <laughs> well, okay, go back to the dragon. There's a dragon boss, a flying dragon, like like straight out of NeverEnding Story. This is probably the first time the game really changes up the way the game is played. And so you're you're sort of put into a shmup, you know, side scrolling, but still, a shoot 'em up, and you're you end up fighting this boss. I appreciated that it was a nice change of gameplay pace without being so difficult that it was frustrating. I see. I didn't have trouble with that one. When I was saying dragon boss, I meant when you first the first dragon boss, <laughs> where he's flying around in a loop, eating the clouds. Oh, that one. Yeah. Because that's that was the first boss where I really had some issues with, but I found a way to cheese it, right? We'll have to talk about how you cheese that one later, because we spent a lot of time discussing cheesing battles in this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But uh, yeah, there's there's one where it's a shoot 'em up, and this is in the main game, not the DLC. But it's not difficult. It's just a nice change of pace for a few minutes, and it's not hard enough to where you're going to get frustrated. You probably won't lose the first time you do it. If you do, it's not such an unforgiving fight that you prob like, you'll probably get it the second time if you didn't get it the first. And that's something this game, like they sort of experimented with that idea of changing up, what, changing up expectations. But with the DLC, instead of experimenting, they kind of threw it out the window and were like, yes, we're just going to change up expectations a lot which they did with that first level area, the, the what I call the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles super, sewer surfing segment, 
Yeah. And then the final boss, whereas the first part of the final boss is not a fight, but a chase, like a race, platforming race. And then the second part of the boss, do we want to spoil it here? I mean, we don't need to say who it is and what the story is behind it, but I think the mechanics of it are worth talking about, yeah. Well, okay, so yes, the <laughs> the mechanics basically turn it into Punch-Out. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's wild, right? Like, you have a giant screen for Lean Boss, and you're thinking, oh, goody, another platforming thing. But then it's like, you do the thing, because everybody loves doing the thing. And yeah. Then, yeah, it's two giant Goliaths in a Punch-Out fight. And it's it doesn't look the most difficult, or at least what I watched, but it looks fun. It took me two attempts, and that's just because, you know, they drop you in it without much of an idea of what you're doing, so you're just kind of going on instinct and ex- experimentation. I think you probably could do it in the first try if you manage to figure everything out or you're better at that sort of game than I am. But uh, after you fail, you're put back at the save point. You can talk to one of the blue robes and he explains to you how the the mechanics work for it you get a little tutorial of it and so uh, i beat okay. it the second time no problem so it, it wasn't difficult it was just it, my brain didn't know what to do because i was so used to the the high octane platforming and then here's punch out and i was like oh well good i'm not even good at regular punch out but but you know what though i liked it in a way because it's ending with the main game too. At the end of the main game, the boss fight, the first what you think is the final boss fight, was really tough for me. It took me took longer than I wanted to. So when you beat that and there's another section afterward, you're like, Oh, I don't want to do another boss. I can't handle the boss. My brain is done. The last one was really tough. But then it's just a fluffy thing, right? With when you do the thing. So I, I like that. I like how in the DLC even the DLC is is balls hard all the way, right? That chase sequence looked tricky. And then you get to the final boss and you're, you're like, I'm done. <laughs> but yeah. it's, not, it's not a hard boss. It's punch out. After the race, the, DL, the, the final boss of the DLC is like a, just kind of a cherry on top of the experience. Like you've yeah. done the hard stuff. Have a little fun. Right. Yeah. Have a little fun after <laughs> this hell. <laughs> yeah. And I don't want to, like I said, I don't want to get too into the story, but the DLC's story, well not necessary to the main game is not as detached from the main game as I was expecting. It's actually, it fills in some holes to the main game that kind of surprised me. Well, yeah, because it's a parallel universe type of thing, right? Yes. Right, and it's called Picnic Panic, so it's very lighthearted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's it's on a tropical island in an alternate reality where this continent didn't form together completely and... So they've got a little island part of the continent off to the side that you go there, and that's where you adventure in this DLC. The music sounds tonally quite a bit different from the primary game, and I don't think it was really for me. I didn't groove on the DLC's music quite as much as I did the main game. It still all fit. It was still good. It was a lot of fun. I I appreciated the DLC for what it was. I probably won't play it again, but I like that it filled in some plot holes that weren't Huge plot holes, but rather backstory that they didn't fill in in the main game. Well, the great thing about the game is light on plot, but whenever it does the big twists and reveals and you get into the heart of it, you're like, oh, that's actually incredibly deep, incredibly interesting. I kind of wish they did more of it. (laughs) They did go lore dump, but I I wish they expanded later on. And I'm wondering if there's ever a sequel to this game, how far they're going to go with it. Because I'd love to hear more about the the background and a bit of the lore. As lighthearted as it is, and it doesn't take itself seriously, but the times that it does, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, and when I said earlier that the story is kind of grim and dark, let's... (laughs) For those of you who are familiar with Darkwing Duck, the old Disney afternoon cartoon, there was an episode, I think it was just one episode, it might have been a two-parter, I don't recall, where Goslin gets sucked into the future... And so she's something like 10, 20 years in the future at this point, and her dad, Darkwing, is now sort of a... He's basically turned the city into military lockdown under his control. People get life in prison for purse snatching and 
you know, 10 years for spitting out gum, that sort of thing. So it's really over the top. He's now willing to kill instead of just detain his villains, things like that. And at one point, he almost takes her out. But at the end of the day, it's still an episode of Darkwing Duck. So it's not, like, it's still not ridiculously serious despite being dark. Right. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. That's kind of how I felt with this game. It's... <laughs> the 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 history reveal in the game was just like, oh, wow, this is cool. I would love to see this explored even further than what we got in the game. Yeah, because like for a game that starts off very light, like we said, just a basic platformer, and you think that's all it is. But then once you get past into the, the future jump and then the Metrovania part opens up, you're like, this game is far more deeper and complicated than it advertises itself. It is not what I thought. <laughs> and I, I want to share this with the, with the listeners. After I played this game, I insisted that Jake, GP, and Paul had to play this game. And so Jake started playing it. And what is it, like a week later, you chimed in in chat, holy shit, you guys have to play this game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, third re- that third twist, I'm like, what? Or the second twist, whatever, with the Metrovania point. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> where did yeah. that even come from? <laughs> so <laughs> the second twist is where it's like, oh, man, this game is a lot deeper than I expected. And it, yeah. was, it was a very rewarding experience. I look forward to playing through the new Game Plus content, which, I mean, it's the same content, just harder, of course. But I look forward to playing through it, seeing how far I can get. Yeah, my experience with going back to, to Ninja Gaiden and just, that game sucks. <laughs> the Messenger is so much better. Uh, I, I kind of want to go back to the Messenger and give it another go. This time, take my time, because I was trying to rush to record this. So I wanted to yeah. rush through it. So I missed a lot of the medallions. And there's some sections where I was getting a little frustrated because I was doing it so fast. But that's also one of the interesting things about this is, is speedrunners. There's a leaderboard on speedrun.com for this. I think they even have it on the website of the game developer. And they have various themes of speedrunning, right? An 8-bit section only to the 100% to the whole game. Uh, and this gives a game where it would be fun to speedrun because, like you said, it's all about cheese tactics and finding shortcuts, right? It's stuff that speedrunners are known for in classic retro games and that feels like a callback to a lot of that um, the speedrun for this game has to be fun to watch i would imagine that a speedrun not a 100% speedrun but a you know start to end credit speedrun is probably 6 to 7 hours if it's faster than that i'd be very surprised cuz there's a lot of ground to cover well let me check my mind palace <laughs> it was fast it was faster than that one second damn yeah, it was it was really different. Hold on, because I remember thinking maybe I should speed run this, and then I saw the times. I'm like, nope. <laughs> uh, so the 100 percent run, the 100 percent run as of a month ago is two hours and 23 minutes. Holy crap! Yeah. It took me 20. I don't even. <laughs> and that wasn't everything. I can I can understand getting it down to five to seven hours. I can't. I'll have to watch that. It's a because one hundred percent. That means you're going, you're backtracking through a lot of the areas and finding everything you missed. It looks like there's both a non edit of bounds. There's an edit of bounds cheese, I guess, or a glitch. But there's also a version with edit huh. with none of that, and it's just as long. It's still two hours, which is still outstanding. Wow. Huh. I'm just checking. The eight bit section is only thirty minutes. That's what I would probably try. That's wild. Because I was thinking that the new game plus one would probably be the fastest speed runs because it's a little bit more difficult but not ramped up too much and they start you with a bunch of stuff. Well, you get all your all your abilities and then you get to pick one of the Metroidvania items, right? There's a few things. Yeah. The, so with each time, each new game plus, you're granted another item to add to your assortment that you start the game with. And they also, every few, I think, add more items to the pool that you can select from. Oh. So the first time, when you first started up, you start with a handful of items, and then they give you a choice of four, like the the ordinary candle, the strength thistle, and I don't even remember what the other the two The light were. foot tabby, let's just run on water. Yes, and there was one more, and I, I think I ended up picking the strength thistle, and then as I got through to the, uh, the bamboo jungle or whatever, I was like, man, I should have picked the light foot tabby. 
Well, yeah, the, the running on lava and water opens up a, a few areas. and makes a few areas a lot easier. Yes. So if I get to New Game Plus 2, that's probably what I'll go with. <laughs> Theoretically, I think if you were to play through enough times, you could start a New Game Plus with everything. Yeah, I thought there was a limit on it, but it was high, like five or six rounds of it or something. Something ridiculous. More than I'd be able to handle. <laughs> as far as I understand, it's technically endless because they just apply a formula to how much health and how much damage everything does. Right, and just draws out those battles even longer. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. Well, we should probably wrap it up. I mean, yeah. anybody listening should probably realize if they have not played this game, you really should play this game. <laughs> I don't say that too often. And uh, especially for 2020, like somebody was putting up together lists of game of the year, and I don't own the, the PS4 or whatever, so I don't have The Last of Us 2. Like a lot of people do. And I look at all the other games I played this year, nothing really stands out as game of the year level for me this year. And I don't know what the rest of the year is going to have, but it doesn't look like much because everything going on. So it's the perfect time to go back and play some of the older titles. And The Messenger's only two years old by this point. I think the DLC came out last year, even. Yeah. So I, I knew I would like this game. I didn't know I would fall in love with this game. That's kind of where I was. And that's why I never started it. Because I always like Metroidvanias. It's very rare that I dislike them. I would probably put this one as my favorite Metroidvania of all time. And that's putting it above Hollow Knight. And I know a lot of people love Hollow Knight. I think that one fell a little flat for me. And this is where I'm going to hurt some feelings. I'm sorry. But... <laughs> I, I mean, I liked Hollow Knight. But I would rank this higher than Hollow Knight as well. For me, it was just a matter of Hollow Knight felt like the game needed to be more calculated in terms of combat mechanics, and combat isn't really my thing. Right. The platforming in The Messenger is where you really had to be calculated and reflexive and all that, and I just had so much fun with that. That's what pushed it over the top for me. And some people would complain that it's a Metroidvania that has bottomless pits, so you fall into a pit, you die. I get that, but at the same time, those pits can usually be read as to whether it's a bottomless pit or a pit you can go down into and survive. Yeah, those graphics clues, for sure. So it, it could be, like, if, if there's no background visual showing that it goes all the way to the bottom of the screen instead of fading out to another color, there's, like, a ladder or something like that on one of the walls. There's always a visual clue to know you can go down there instead of just you know, good luck, <laughs> take a right. chance on this one, maybe you'll make it. Yeah, I never really felt like screwed over by the game in that that way. I think the only time I ever had a, a, an issue where it's like, I gotta, I gotta take a break. You have to rescue all these little purple dudes in the main game. And there's one in the uh, Arrow Palace area, the Cloud Ruins. And to get to him in from the checkpoint, you have to get through two sequences, two, two large long screens. And the one section, again, demands cloud stepping. And you have to kind of go down, bouncing off the lanterns and these ghosts, and get up. And it looks it looks like it shouldn't be that hard. But I had the damnedest trying to get through that, that section of cloud uh, stepping. And if you screwed it up, you have to kind of go back to the last checkpoint. And there's a bit of a, of a run-through, and it's very annoying for me. But it's just overall, overall the game felt, like, hard, but not overly so, except for a few few scenes. Yeah, for me, it was never frustratingly hard. And, I mean, that's obviously not going to be the case for everybody. It depends on how much you like this type of game, what kind of mechanics you prefer in this type of game. But I think you're almost certain to have a really good time with this game, even if you don't touch the DLC. Just the main game, you'll probably have a blast. Yeah, I'd agree. So I think that's as good a place as any to wrap it up. I think so. So uh, thank you for talking with me on this and uh, rushing through it so that we could. This is a game I've <laughs> I probably had a talk just like this with my friend the day after I beat it. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the second over an hour long talk I've had about this game since I beat it. There you go. That's how much I loved it. Yeah, it's a, one fantastic game. Anyway, this has been The Messenger on the top. This has been Press B to cancel on the topic of The Messenger. Go me. I have been your host, Werewolf. Paul isn't here to make fun of the fact that I said have. <laughs> I can pretty much be found here or Twitter 
And I was joined by Sick Jake. Where can we find you? Yeah, I'm Sick Jake. You can find me on Twitch and Twitter, and then on the occasional Saturdays on Twitch at Zelda Done Whenever. I'm still slogging through that game. Which one are you on now? Parallel Worlds. I got like eight dungeons left. (laughs) (laughs) It's good. It's not messenger good. (laughs) It's long. (laughs) All right, folks. Have a good one. You'll hear from us next week. Bye. Special thanks for music go to Arthur the Ancient found on SoundCloud or The Last Ancient on YouTube. For more episodes, please visit our website, pressbtocancel.com. As well, feel free to like or subscribe at Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you like to listen to your favorite shows. As always, thank you. This has been... Press B to cancel. <laughs>